Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we are going to look at Genesis chapter 29. And this whole section has been focused on Jacob, and we're transitioning into Jacob's main narrative. And in the last chapter, in the last couple chapters, uh, Jacob's just had a very pivotal moment in his story. And, you know, as is the custom, Jacob is going to interact here with a well, which can only mean one thing. A marriage is about to take place. And, and these next three chapters, so Genesis 29, 30, and 31, these kind of act as the rising action of Jacob's story. So let's get into this, uh, this chapter that has a lot more narrative complexity, maybe, than uh, some of the stories of the other patriarchs have offered. So this chapter starts out, Jacob goes on a journey and he comes to the land of the people of the East, which is just a fascinating way to describe where he's going and what's happening. And in Genesis, you get all of these couple different references uh, going on here. One, East, which remarks back to the garden, yeah. eastward of, of Eden, paradise, the garden. Um, and so he's, he comes to the land of the people of the East. We also know as the Genesis story has gone that this um, kind of implies Babylon or even that that eastern Mesopotamian region. Um, so that's kind of a contrast, you know, think, think Genesis 11, Tower of Babel kind of depiction. He's come to the land of those people. But within that, we also know that Abraham's... Um, ancestry still occupies that land. So Abraham had left and gone west. Uh, Jacob is returning east. And we know this is the case because this is what uh, Jacob's mother has been, it seems like she set this up for him to do. He needs to return back to his ancestral heritage so that he can get married appropriately because Esau didn't and it caused all of these problems. And if Jacob, the younger, is, is going to be served by the older and all of that stuff's going to come true, well, at some point he has to go and marry appropriately back with these people who are the people of the East. So all that's thrown into that first verse and uh, hopefully you're able to pick up on some of that. Um, but then he sees a well in a field and there are three flocks of sheep lying beside it. Um, and there's the shepherds who are going to water their flocks at this well. And then you get this, this extra detail uh, the stone on the well's mouth was large. So the flocks are gathered there. The shepherds usually would roll back this stone, uh, water the sheep, put it back over to the mouth of the well. And that's kind of our intro. Yeah. So what's going on here? Yeah, it seems a little strange. So Jacob says to the guys, he goes, where are you from? And they say, oh, well, we're from Haran. And they say, oh, do you know Laban? You know, so then he, he they say, yeah, yeah. In fact, his daughter, Rachel, is going to be bringing her sheep in soon. And, and, and then we'll water the sheep. And he says, well, look, he goes, it's still broad daylight. It's, it's not time for the animals to be gathered yet. So water your sheep and then take them back out. And I kind of wondered if, Either he's trying to get rid of them because he sees them as rivals for Rachel. Here comes this beautiful woman. He suddenly says, let's get these guys out of here. Or is there some other kind of authority that he's taking there? But that was my response to that. And I also kind of wondered if 
is it possible that that stone is somewhat symbolic? I mean, it's true that, yes, in reality, they would put a stone over the well in order to protect it from pollution or from people stealing their water, whatever. But in this case, too, I wonder if it has a deeper meaning of representing maybe Jake or Rachel's purity, that only Jacob is the one who is able to access that. Because we'll see then a little bit later here that some stuff goes on. Yeah, and one of the parallels that we should see, you know, there's a well that waters animals. Yeah. And this motif is uh, is very telling because the last time we saw a well that was watering animals, well, this sounds like Rebecca. Absolutely. Uh, and Rachel being a descendant of that same family, Jacob now coming as the heir of a patriarch, you know, this all sounds the same. Yeah. But then you do have these differences. You know, bunch of shepherds watering their flocks. That's a different kind of animal than was available in, in Rebecca's. Right. One way you could look at that is apparently this is not as urban of a setting oh. maybe as Rebecca's was. Maybe not. Um, and the fact that there seems to be more travel going on uh, mm-hmm. and more distance. And these are sheep as opposed to camels. Um, so that's that's one thing that you we, we pick up on that the animals are different. And then you have this stone. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I read the stone as an interpretive key here. I think Jacob's approach to them and how the stone is utilized is a key to the story um, because he needs to find his ancestral people. Mm-hmm. And so however he's going to interact with these shepherds is going to help him figure out what is going on here because he's, as far as we know, never been to this place or met any of these people. Right. So somehow he needs to utilize these shepherds to point him in the correct direction. And fortunately, the shepherds know Laban, son of Nahor. Yeah. Um, and they Rural even town, comment, they know everybody. Right? They even, it's, it, it does feel like small town, like, yeah. hey, we know him and he's doing well. You know, and and look, here's his daughter, Rachel, coming with sheep. And it's almost like as this was obviously planned, you yeah. know. So we should see that the story is being set up in a way to, to lead us, one, with these connections with Jacob's history mm-hmm. and Rebecca specifically, um, but also to catalyze like, OK, something's going to happen here. Right. And we're not told yet anything about Rachel. We're not told no. really anything about what's going on. Um, so we're kind of being set up that something's going to pull the rug out from underneath of this. Um, this part where Jacob tells them to leave mm-hmm. on my first read, um, I want to say that this sounds like awkward teenager, you know, interacting with a pretty woman. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he does, under the guise of showing some agricultural prowess, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's not time for the animals to be gathered together. And as you're, as you're reading this, I hope, at least this is what I found myself doing, you know, you're thinking, it's almost like he's got some, you know, experience with fields and taking care of goats and pretending like they are hunted game. The fact that Jacob is able to know so much about what's going on with shepherds uh-huh. implies that he too has done this work before. Oh yeah, for sure. And so this is plain to the uh, the identity of Jacob that's been put before us. All the oh, chapters okay. leading up to this, that you know? kind of makes sense. Because my thought was yeah. like, yeah, like those shepherds don't know that. But then, I mean, to me, there's also a connection between Rebecca 
and her camels and Jacob because look what happens then. There's all these guys there. They're waiting for more guys to show up so they can roll the stone away. Mm-hmm. Jacob sees Rachel and it's like that stone is gone. He does it by himself. So right. there's that superhuman um, action, just like Rebecca watered 10 camels. I mean, we yeah. didn't think of it at the time because we've never watered camels, most of us. But, you know, in this case, it's like 400 gallons of water she drip with, with, with just one jug. So it's like a superhuman act. And here Jacob does the same thing. He takes that stone and rolls it right away all by going, himself. Going above and beyond. Right. You, you know, there's a similarity there. Um, the the part where he tells the shepherds to leave because Rachel is approaching, you know, I think you have to read everything Jacob says with suspicion. Okay. Um, you know, I don't have a way to qualify that necessarily. Um, but I'm always going like, no, he's up to something. <laughs> but they, they can't leave until the flocks are watered. So he moves this stone. And then, uh, he, you know, I, I don't know. I know a lot of people preach on that and... Either they're making a connection to like, you need to uh, do this superhuman work or God can work through you to move stones and right. mountains. And we just made a connection that I don't think is there. Um, mm-hmm. Or immediately people go to, this is like the resurrection and the oh. stone gets rolled away. And I don't know that that's there. Okay. I think the emphasis is what happens next. Because then uh, as Rachel shows up, we find out she too is a shepherd yeah. on behalf of her father. And now we're going to start getting details about uh, Rachel that are either going to reflect Jacob or Rebecca. Okay. Um, so like the, the next thing that happens is she offers this immense hospitality. Um, and this is same thing with Rebecca in this, you know, we saw this very clearly with the camels watering Abraham servants, camels and immense hospitality. Yeah. Um, and Jacob's going to be invited back, but it's because of his hospitality. Yeah. Right. So he waters the, the, uh, the sheep, he rolls away the stone. And so I think this is just trying to present Rachel as reflecting Rebecca and reflecting Jacob. And it's meant to make Jacob go the obvious son of Rebecca here. Mm-hmm. The obvious continuance of that same thing. So that's what I would I would focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he kisses Rachel. And then he cries. Yeah. And, I mean, either this is like a weird, sappy romance thing gone wrong. Like, poor kid's first kiss. He can't handle the emotion of it. Just <laughs> weeps after. Um, or there's something else going on here. And I think it's there's a potential that Jacob has found solace in the ancestry of, of his family. Um, and by acting in the pattern of his mother towards that, that family group mm-hmm. and, and by experiencing a bit of his mother in Rachel, I think this is a more impactful mo- moment. You know, the kiss I don't think is romantic at this point. No. And in fact, we know that because Laban then kisses right. Jacob. Right. And that's kind this. of a Middle Eastern way of greeting one another. Yes. So, you know, perhaps the emotion, like you said, is, is deeper than it would normally be. But the kiss and, isn't unusual at all. And I think that, that, uh, that connected emotion is about going. Jacob has begun his hero's journey. Yeah. And uh, has gone through some turmoil with that already. And has had some confrontation. Um, and all of this history leads up to a moment where he goes, I made it. Yeah. I made it back to my ancestral family here. Um, yeah. 
So I think that's what that is about. Um, but I do like the perspective of the sappy romance gone wrong too. <laughs> um, but this also says something about Rachel and Rachel is going to become a very important character. Uh, but Rachel is not going to just be a spouse to Jacob. Rachel is also the embodiment of Jacob's and therefore Israel's. Cause we talked about how Jacob's kind of an archetype of Israel. Yeah. This is going to, Rachel's going to be an embodiment of their future, uh-huh. right? In the midst of turmoil, uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's found some solace there. And I, you know, I think that's why he cries at his first kiss, but, mm-hmm. um, also of note that's going on kind of in this section. So we're around like verse, uh, 13, yeah. um, right before that. Um, so up to verse 12, we have been told three times that this is the daughter of Laban, 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 whatever way you prefer. I don't care. Um, but we've been told three times that okay. that's the case. And so if you're reading this and you're going, what's the most important thing? Is it the stone? Is it the shepherds? No, it's that this is the daughter of Laban. Uh, this is the daughter of Laban. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's what the the author wants us yeah. to have our he's, eyes on. He's marrying correctly. Unlike his brother, he's doing yeah. the right thing here. And it makes it look like the Isaac and Rebecca story as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also means, uh, well, are we going with Laban or Laban? I call it Laban. I've always pronounced Laban. it Laban. Great. I just need something there. Okay. Uh, but then Laban enters the scene and we find out he's going to be a very important character too. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hears about his sister's son and runs out to meet him, which common hospitality, mm-hmm. that's something obviously ingrained in, in this family's history. Um, and he then, as you had said, he kisses Jacob. Um, at this point, you know, we should be aware this is not, the kiss is not a romantic gesture. It's a, it's a hospitable one. Um, and what ha- is happening here as, as uh, Laban embraces Jacob in this way is Jacob is being brought to his house, which is both location and um, like specific building, but also family. Right. This is genealogy. Here. So it's not just, I'm embracing you hospitably mm-hmm. and bringing you back to, you know, that building over there. It's I'm bringing you into my family. Okay. Right. So that's an important thing that happens. Um, and then you kind of get the, uh, the families reconnecting. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, so what's been going on? And Jacob updates Laban on, uh, on all the, all the stuff that's happened. Yeah. And then Laban responds with a strange uh, poetic line. Surely you are bone of my, uh, you are my bone and my flesh. And then that leads to Jacob staying there. Yeah. Interesting Uh, echo. Now, Jacob up to here has taken the role of Rebecca, right? And now Jacob seems to be taking on the role of Eve back from Genesis 2. Uh, because this is the line that Adam, yeah. Adam, says to Eve upon their connection, their collaboration as human beings in the world. Uh, their unity, right? Genesis 2, their unity yeah. brings the companionship necessary for human existence to continue on. Apparently, both Laban and Jacob have now found that in the extension of their family. 
because this, this is directly out of Genesis 2. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that kind of begins this height of embrace, bringing back into the family. You are my, of my bone and of my flesh. Here we go. We're connected. We're united. Okay, yeah. You've had separation, and now we're coming back together. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it looks like, you know, all of this with Rachel and now Laban, it looks like the, the narrative that began back when Jacob was sent has uh, come to fruition. Right. And what we're about to find out is actually it just set up how everything's going to go wrong. Yeah. Once again, at the whole story, you come together and then it kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. And so starting in verse 15, this is where things kind of go, uh, kind of go astray. And it comes down to the interaction of the family, I think. Um, So verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Go ahead. I thought that was an interesting comment. I'm trying to figure out when I was reading this, is this um, truly where he's saying, here you are in my family, or is this again that kind of Middle Eastern backhanded way of saying, well, you've been hanging around, when are you going to start working? That was almost the impression I got, because he says, so tell me, Jacob, what do you want to get paid to start doing something here? Because remember, Jacob shows up with nothing, unlike when the other servant shows up for Isaac, he has gifts, he has camels, he has all these things. Jacob shows up with nothing but the clothes on his back. Yeah. So. Um, well, remember what just happened after his little poetic line. Mm-hmm. And Jacob stayed with him for a month. Yeah, so it's been a month now. And what I see happening here is Jacob's kind of entering into the household, but that has moved from hospitality now to servitude. Yeah. So Laban, apparently kindly, uh, offers wages. Which means Jacob is not a servant, okay? So he's not uh, of some sort of distance class amongst the household. Right. It, it would make him a potential inheritor of the family. And what we have to be aware of is that Laban and Jacob are kind of mirrors of each other. Yes, they are. Laban is a game player uh, as well. You know, you could say like it runs in the blood or the bones and the flesh, if you will. And so you kind of go back mm-hmm. to like, you are of my bone and of my flesh, and we are both psychos. <laughs> like, this is who Certainly we are. tricksters. Yeah. And uh, so if Laban lets Jacob be acknowledged as a guest, you know, he's been there a month, then he can exact labor from Jacob. And there's a disconnect between him being able to be a suitable husband for his daughter. If Jacob works for free... That could be the bride price. So like you said, he's not coming with all of this wealth in order to pay a bride price. Yeah. Um, He could work that off, but not if he's getting paid. Right. Uh, Or if he's going to work as a part of the household, then he would be a part of Laban's household. He could also, if he does the servitude for a bride price, at the end of that, he has the ability to leave now with his family. Okay, so this isn't just Jay, uh, Laban being like, hey, I should I should throw some money your way. You know, mm-hmm. you've cut the grass. You're <laughs> doing a lot of really good things around the house. Here's some here's some change. Um, it's Laban trying to control how he's able to marry off his daughters. Yeah. And potentially keeping Jacob from that. And again, the important part is so that he can't take 
one of his daughters with him back because that would be the custom. It is an unusual bride price, I will have you say. Not that I had a whole lot of details about that, but to work for a bride like that isn't something that was normally done. No. Um, And in situations where somebody wasn't able to afford a bride price, um, in most circumstances, there just wasn't really an economic marriage that happened. Yeah, I'd be like, sorry, you just won't get my daughter. Yeah. Um, And here, the daughters are going to become the central theme of Jacob and Laban's economic relationship. And so we we meet Leah, uh, or Leah, and that word's going to become important here. Um, but, But we meet her, and she is older. So think Esau. Mm-hmm. And she has lovely eyes. Yes. Which could either be a way of like, not a whole lot to work with, but your eyes are fine. <laughs> right. um, but the eye is often a metaphor for the internal state. Um, so like when Jesus says, you know, oh, right. if you, your eye is good, then, well, that that's a way of uh, kind of reflecting on what comes into the body. Mm-hmm. And so to say somebody has lovely eyes could also be a way to say uh, she was internally beautiful. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot, you know, of beauty on the outside, but, um, and that's a way of kind of differentiating uh, these two daughters. Rachel is younger uh, and ha- was both graceful and beautiful. Right. Right. Now, Jacob, as a younger sibling, has a penchant for the younger one. Mm-hmm. And you should be kind of seeing these connections between Esau, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Absolutely. And we find out that Jacob actually loves Rachel and asks to work seven years as a bride price for the younger daughter. So Laban kind of pushes this economic deal. I'll just pay you. And get your labor. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the discussion. Jacob says, nope, I want to marry Rachel. Bride price. Um, and Laban agrees to this. Yeah. But yeah, Laban's a trickster. Jacob's a trickster. They both just played the game with each other. Mm-hmm. Nobody was overt about it. Laban agrees and we got to go, eh, what's, something's not going to go well here. Um. And so then you get to verse 21, and Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. I do want to point out, um, the English translation implies a much stronger sexual overtone than the Hebrew. It's not really there in the Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, A better translation might be that I may be brought unto her, which still implies uh, the consummation, maybe, um, But this is an interesting part of the ancient Near East is you'll notice that he already calls her wife. Um, Now you can translate verse 21, give me my woman or give me my wife. It's the same word in Hebrew. Okay. Uh, But either way, there is a a, a possessiveness to it, Mm -hmm. to that connection. So Jacob is already interacting with her as wife. And so we go, well, that's how, how can that be that they haven't gotten married yet? Um, but the marriage, and this is how a lot of the ancient years would work, the marriage gets assumed, but not enacted yet. Yeah. Until the process is finished. Sure, because sometimes people even got married when they were too young to be married. They mm-hmm. would set the marriage up ahead of time, but it wasn't until consummation that the marriage was considered actually done. Yeah, so here mm-hmm. Rachel is Jacob's wife this sure. whole time, but not a part of Jacob's household yet. And that's what's being discussed here. That time has happened, Laban. I've paid. I've paid the full bride price. Yep. It's time to move on to the next step. Um, 
And an interesting play on words here. Being brought unto in Hebrew is the word Leah. Oh. And so uh, if we were to read that differently, we could say, give me my wife that I may Leah. Interesting. You know, so they're yeah. playing with words there mm-hmm. that you don't, you don't catch that in, in um, English. You, there's a, miss, a lot you miss in translation with these things. They do so much of that punning and wordplay and names and things in Hebrew mm-hmm. that make it really interesting. Um, then, now, then we get the, uh, the subversion. Yeah. All right. So up until now, there was this rising action. It felt like completion. And then we find out that, oh, nope, there's some conflict here. Mm-hmm. And now it's, that's all going to come to a head because a wedding feast begins, you know, and then Laban arranges Leah's presence. A drunken mistake, I suppose. Right? Yeah. That's one way you could look at this. Well, and the brides are all veiled yes. until after this week is over. So, yeah. Now, this all happens. We'll come back to this in a minute. Right. But um, Jacob gets mad after figuring out uh, that, that Laban tricked him. Mm-hmm. And when he when Jacob responds, he says, the Hebrew would read, Why did you Yehov me? Yehov is Jacob's name. So he says, why did you Jacob me? <laughs> In other words. Which is, why did you deceive me? Why did you mm-hmm. trick me? Um, why did you do to me what I am supposed to be doing to others? The game is being played here. Right. And we saw this uh, previously, that Jacob's going to come into this world and it's going to come back on him. Yeah. And that's a choice that he made. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what he did. She disguises herself, or Laban disguises Leah. You know, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what Jacob did, disguising himself yes. to pretend to be Esau. To so be somebody it's like else. You just got, yes. The, the table's turned on you. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you get another interesting, like the layers just keep building. And yeah. Laban says, "This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn." Well, yeah. why would Laban say that? Because there's not a whole lot of like. Um, set in code that that was what happened we assume you know firstborn but why would Laban bring that up yeah I don't know because when I did research on this I didn't find any real evidence that that was necessarily the custom in the Mm -hmm. ancient Near East anywhere you know it really wasn't about that at all it seems to me um, I know Nahum Sarna wondered if because of that custom this says something about when that story was written is this story older than the Levitical code yeah. or was the Levitical code added because this has been a problem among, you know, is this kind of a common, I don't know, motif perhaps or, or a thing that happens. But yeah, you do kind of wonder why he says that. Mm-hmm. Remember earlier when uh, Jacob sort of brought Laban up to date? Mm-hmm. Is Laban using Jacob's narrative sort of against him? Maybe. Of... You know, Jacob, you deceived your father Isaac so that the younger received before the firstborn. And is Laban reversing the deception mm-hmm. of we're not going to let you get away with that again? Um, we're not going to have that happen in our family. Um, so then Jacob has to do another seven years, eventually marries Rachel as well. Multiple wives issue. This should sound like there's almost some irony here of, hey, Jacob, you kind of became Esau a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. 
And then, um, and then we get this anecdote on Leah and um, Rachel, which starts looking like genealogical uh, set pieces again. Okay. Right. We haven't had one of these in a while, um, but we're going to get some names coming up to help us kind of see that the story is moving forward. I mean, we just we just jumped fourteen years right there in a in a couple of verses. Um, but uh, also to then give us the explanation of what all has happened. So remember how genealogies function throughout Genesis. You kind of have another one here. Um, but there's a lot more details going on because Adonai shows up now. So this whole part with Jacob, Laban, Rachel, the shepherds. Right. We haven't, it's just been the story. We haven't had any emphasis of, you know, the divine being being present. This is true. Um. But now Adonai shows up and it says in verse 31, when Adonai saw that Leah was unlo- unloved, he opened her womb. He sees that Leah is unloved because Jacob loved Rachel more. An abandoned woman is seen by God. Mm-hmm. This has happened already. This is Hagar. Right. Um, then... You also have this, he opened her womb. And, and a womb is a sign of divine favor. Right. Leah's is opened. So Leah, who was abandoned, neglected, made second, is going to provide the firstborn through whom the covenant's going to continue. Technically. Right. She gets the firstborn. Right. On the other side of this, we find out Rachel is barren. And we also know how the story has gone. Uh, that this has a divine motif because God always works the covenant through barren women. Right. Um, and so this is a complicated depiction because it looks like God sees Leah just like he did Hagar. Mm-hmm. But just like Hagar, Leah's still not going to uh, be of utmost importance. Yeah. And it's, it, like you said, it seemed odd to me because she had all the genealogy to be an ancestress. So I wasn't sure. Right. Why J- why Rachel is the one who follows because that she still gets the firstborn. Pattern. Well, yeah, well, so did Hagar. Does. Yeah, Hagar still technically had the firstborn. That's Ishmael. true. And uh, and so you see this divine providence, and yet it still doesn't go Leah's way. Yeah, because Rachel also, uh, you, you know, there, in in the Hagar story, Sarah did all sorts of stuff that was like, hmm, oh, don't yeah, know she, about that. Mm-hmm. But in the end, she's the one who um, is barren, continues the covenant, right. Um, and that looks like that's happening here again. So uh, Rachel and Jacob and Leah, there's all these motifs going on behind behind this. Um, but then we get the more genealogical part where uh, Reuben and Simeon are born, uh, both signs of God's intervention, right? right. Despite, you know, Jacob's malaise. Uh, but they're both symbols of Leah's hope. And again, we should see parallels here between Esau and, and Leah, with, mm-hmm. with uh, these first two being born. And then Levi is born third and Judah fourth. And those are names that you're going to recognize more. Absolutely. Um, and, and because of, you know, Leah has the first two children. So this is going well. But then Levi is born third and Judah fourth. And so you think after, after four children, Jacob will prefer her now. And Judah is even, um, it, the name is a sign of praise that uh, Leah is no longer ho- hoping for returned love. Look, she's, she's given Jacob everything he needs. 
But then we find out this, this whole chapter ends that she ceased bearing children. Yeah. And so we know something's going to happen with Leah here. And, but one of the interesting parts of this is, is, and this is similar with Hagar, I think, despite all of what we know is going to happen with Jacob's ancestry, Levi and Judah become two of the more important uh, forefathers yeah. of tribes. Sure. And they come from Leah. Yeah. And so despite Jacob's malaise for Leah and the issues here, Leah does lead to two of the more pronounced tribes within Israelite tradition. Mm -hmm. Yes, she does. And yet, like I keep going back to, it seems like Rachel is the one who follows the matriarchal pattern. She's the one who is barren. She offers her maidservant then to Jacob. And then finally, in the end, she ends up having a child, which we'll see later on in chapter 30 when she has Joseph and then Benjamin. So it's funny that she's the one who follows the pattern, even though Leah is actually, she's got the genealogy to be the matriarch. She's got these children who are very important. And yet somehow Rachel is the one who follows the pattern of Sarah and her mother, Rebecca. Yeah. And um, Jake, this is where Jacob's story kind of starts diverting into its own theme. Because Joseph becomes um, an outlier to all of the motifs. Yeah. Right? The Jacob or Joseph story kind of becomes its own depiction within Israelite tradition. Right. Um, but even within that, Joseph is preferred, even though he's not yes, firstborn, he not even mm-hmm. not even the ones that are going to be the most esteemed or powerful, and yet still preferred till till the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates a lot of nuance within the story as well. But as we'll get into later in Genesis, but then even in, in, into later Israelite history, these are going to become the tribes. Right. And these stories, remember, they're, um, they're, they're giving us origins. Yeah. And these are helping to explain why certain things happen with certain tribes. You know, well, Judah comes to power in the south. Well, they're one of the first. And then we're going to read about Judah and some of the things he does and um, some of the conflict between some of the tribes kind of traced this back its way to, well, you were, you were from Leah and you were from Rachel. Um, so there, these are giving us origin stories for that as well. Um, but there is one part of, we, we kind of skipped through the, uh, deception of Jacob. Oh, okay. And there's a midrash about this event that, Offer offer some insight into um, not only not only like a, some explanation for the meaning behind it, but helps us get a picture. How could that happen in the first place? Um, so, what what is this midrash about? Oh yeah, this is actually rather beautiful. Um, so Rachel becomes, as we know, the mother of Joseph, whose sons then are Ephraim and Manasseh. And then she's also the mother of Benjamin. So then after the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin are exiled by the Assyrians, Rachel is remembered. We hear of her in the Old Testament in the, in the book of Jeremiah, Rachel weeping for her children and they will not be. So this is interpreted in, in Judaism as Rachel crying for the end of her descendants suffering as exiles and then following the destruction of the Babylonians at the first temple in ancient Jerusalem. So according to the Midrash, Rachel speaks before God. And she says, if I, a mere mortal, was prepared not to humiliate my sister and was willing to take a rival into my home, 
How could you, the eternal, compassionate God, be jealous of idols which have no true existence that were brought into your home, that is, the temple in Jerusalem? Will you cause my children to be exiled on this account? And the story goes that God accepts her plea and promises that eventually this exile will end and the Jews will be returned to their land. And it's interesting because the custom that's behind this story is that a man would give tokens to his future bride for her to wear under her bridal veils for the purpose of preventing the very subterfuge that Laban commits so that he can take sure that he's getting the right girl. The story goes that Rachel unselfishly gives these tokens to Leah so that Leah is then able to fool Jacob, and then even though that means that Leah gets to be the first wife, that, you know, then Rachel has allowed Leah to do this. And this is not anywhere in the text. This is, this is a midrash, but it's a beautiful bit of extra biblical information because it kind of indicates why these particular behaviors might be, why the story is told the way it is to, um, you know, to show us the characters of Rachel and Leah. And, you know, a lot of times what will happen with a midrash is they're taking two different depictions of a person or an event. So, you know, what's going on with Jeremiah talking about Rachel, mm-hmm. which gets brought up by Jesus as well. Yes, he does. Um, and how would that connect to Rachel's actual story? And and so, I mean, just on the surface of considering that there would be this token, that that was normal. And if it was, then how did Jacob get fooled? Right. Well... Because Rachel had to be in on it. Yeah, Rachel was in on it, and she was willing to give that up. She was giving her position up as the first wife Mm -hmm. in order to let these things happen. Yep. So this this is one of the more, maybe not more, lesser discussed parts of Jacob's story, but it's also one that we have some familiarity with. What I think it's missing in this chapter a lot is the references going on to everything that has happened uh, leading up to the story, really placing Rachel and Jacob uh, within the, the tradition of their ancestors so far. And that's going to continue. And from here, the narrative with Jacob and Rachel is going to kind of wind in different directions and then finally leave to a, a descent that's going to bring us all the way back to Esau. Um, so you got, there's a couple more chapters of, of this depiction, and then Jacob's story takes off again in, in an even further direction that's going to now start focusing on his ancestors. Um, so that's Genesis 29. Next time, uh, we'll be getting into Genesis 30 and 31 and see where the story goes next. <laughs>